Experiential Learning, a letter to Mr. Johnson. When I look at the White House and I see the president with a white hood, I mean face using words as weapons and power as a plaything, I think back to ninth grade US government where I am more worried about the girl I'll be assigned to sit by or the length of the lunch line, but you, Mr. Johnson, were dedicated to teaching. So when you saw me settled with my collection of colorful pins, filling in the cracks of your lectures with my own creative connections, you couldn't condone such behavior. So with heavy steps and swift hands, you snatch my paper crumple it like a candy wrapper and throw it in the trash. Stunned, I search the faces of my peers for comfort, but only see honorable students passing notes, others eating sandwiches, and some avoiding my eyes. You were trying to teach me about government, power, Life, learn to keep my color inside the line, sit down and do what I'm supposed to because you make all the rules and few will stand up to you. In my next class, I found home in a trombone section, playing a jazz selection when you appear. Make a treaty with my teacher. Move me to detention, teach me deportation. I mean migration, learn that home is never my own. Just a place for you to point me to. So I served my time in a silent room, accompanied by outlaws. The company felt familiar. Black and brown faces forced to feel space without sound, without speech. Learn that policy can reach down my throat and hold each note hostage. Learn the value of voice and its vulnerability. I'm on my Zoom call. A guidance counselor tried to save me. Said you shouldn't be allowed to target me. Said it's time for you to be impeached. I mean fired, but she couldn't make it happen herself. And you had the right friends in high places. And it's all about who you know. So by the end of the day, you called for a conference. You stood podium poised as my parents and I sat behind a desk. Your attempt to get ahead of the truth made your story into a quarter's head. Only showing one side and not concerned with sense, you fabricated trouble with my attention. Confident I couldn't listen if I was too busy concentrating on colors, my brain would be too busy and that's not what's best for me. Learn that you know my body better than me. See, I may have only gotten a C minus in your class, but I still managed to learn all your lessons. So now, when I look at the TV, I can see the tyranny tucked under his tongue. Notice the sound of a stomach's growl for power. My freedom reflected in his eyes and my peers seem surprised. And all I can think is, class is in session. Thank y'all. Yeah, uh, uh. you can give me some snaps, you know, yeah. <laughs>
Kayla Rainey, to ha hear you speak and talk with you is to love you. And I'm mm. so glad that you are with us on this call and you are with us on this earth. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, well, I mean it. Um, it's interesting. You appeared at the um, writer's retreat last year in Okaboji. And we kind of cooked up this thing where, like we did today, without introduction, you just launched into a poem. <laughs> and nobody knew what spoken word was or very few. And everybody's kind of, whoa, hanging on your every word. And I just thank you for what you're doing and who you are. And there's plenty of time to get into the, you know, the bio and all of right. that. but. I want to hear about when you wrote that poem mm. and what you were feeling and what how it transformed you, the actual writing of that piece. Yeah, that's funny because that poem, for a long time, I would name it as one of my like petty poems, like one of my most like angry poems out of the poems I write uh, because it was a moment where I allowed myself to like name a wrong right to, to see something and go hey like I had a teacher that did not treat me right and the process of writing it was to like give my younger version like space to be angry about it and to say something about it and to say I saw that um and now that I'm older I could I have the the ability to truly say something about it uh and by doing so by like getting to face anger I got to also um, like grow past it and through it. Uh, sometimes we get stuck somewhere because we haven't felt it in our, or haven't allowed ourselves to feel it. But with that moment, it was like allowing myself to be petty and angry and be like, you're a bad teacher. <laughs> and then uh, to be able to work through that. So like I hold less anger there, but I can still hold accountability, right? I can still go, that was a bad teacher and that teacher needed to be better without me having so much anger because I got to write it right through it. Well, you know, you use the word petty. I didn't I didn't see any pettiness in that poem whatsoever. I, mm. I saw it as really instructional for people who might not have had that lived experience that you had. And and like stories in general, when people write from their heart and tell their stories, it helps us all understand mm. the journey that other people have been on, which is, you know, kind of what your mission is, my mission is. Absolutely. And, and um, so I want to talk to you about how you work with people and what you see as the transformative process through spoken word. Mm. Yeah, I do a lot of work with people in, in several ways when it comes to, to spoken word. So it's, it, it ranges from me just doing a, a performance in front of people and allowing like kind of um championing my own story and, and sharing that. And by that like shared experience or, or sharing my experiences, uh, we grow together in that way. Uh, in other ways I do workshops and I help writers tackle spoken word, which is a, a genre that allows a lot of freedom and asks the writer to bring a lot of their voice into it, to bring themselves into it. Uh, spoken word cannot be, um, you can't write a, a spoken word piece, a poem without putting yourself into it 
it, it requires that. Part of it is because of the embodiment of speaking the poem to to share it is to to make it alive. And by doing so, it it allows us to have conversations about things that we may have been scared to talk about. So I love some spoken word poems and pieces that don't have all the answers, but they're searching. And by allowing yourself to really ask those questions and then speak them, you you get to step further into or closer to a truth. Um, and I don't know if you guys can hear, but now there's a train coming by. Uh, but uh, yes, and so I do that. I also do like some some DEI workshops and stuff in which we talk about how poetry and writing can either help us look at our own identities and really and really interrogate how we interact with our identities um, or how we want to really truly speak to the outside world about the change that we want to see, the things that we're not okay with. Uh, and I, so I love spoken word as an art form because it kind of begs for that. It says, please, please uh, bring yourself, bring your, your hurt and your, and your hatred and your love and, and your hope and make something out of it. And I, I love that. You and I haven't really debriefed in real time uh, about your workshops at the Okaboji Writers Retreat, but uh, I've, you know, of course, you got top scores and people, you know, made wonderful comments. I don't expect you to remember specifically much about being in the moment during those re workshops, but I wasn't able to attend one. So, tell me what you do in the in the workshops that you present. And this fall too. I mean, I I, I assume we're going to do some of the same, yeah. same kinds of things. But tell me, tell me your approach. My approach is is twofold. Uh, it's either um, like to look at like craft uh, choices that are used in spoken word for you to use as a writer um, in any genre, right? And so one of those workshops was about how how spoken word poems in one minute can capture an audience and even on a video get, you know, 15 million views. How do you do that? Right? What is that? What do you do to what what are they doing craft-wise that is causing readers and audiences to to go, I'm engaged. I want to see what the next 2 minutes are like. I want to hear what this whole piece is. And so one of those workshops is us cutting through like the first minute of these really really um like renowned or, or well-received spoken word poems and figuring out what are the little craft elements that they're using that you can use in any genre, right? Uh, what does it have to do about sentence structure? What are they doing with the setup? Like that kind of stuff. Um, and then the other kind of workshop that I love to do is one that is about how do you write um, politically or uh, what I call protest with poetry. How do you use um, poetic techniques to really talk about um, and attempt to make political change, to change the world around you, because poetry is very much still alive. So if we if we treat it and recognize that it's alive, then how do we speak with it and what do we do with it? Uh, and in what ways do, what are the poems that we hear that stick with us and go, all right, I'm going to change the way I'm thinking, or I'm going to take the, the concept slash argument that's made in this poem. And that will be what I end up telling my uh, racist uncle at Thanksgiving, right? Like, what does it look like, right? To use that. And that's because we use art to still answer all of the questions in our life. So what is spoken word poems? What are they doing? What answers are they giving us? And then how can we mirror that? 
to write our own stuff that's kind of politically charged or uh, pushing for change. Can we take the Mr. Johnson poem and do just what you talked about? <laughs> yes. Uh, um, Why yeah. not? That's fun. That's a fun thing to do. Yes. So th with that poem, um, thinking about like protest poetry and that kind of stuff, it's it's uh, kind of a twofold approach. It's either to be pointing out, right, to be telling people out there in the world, um, this is what I see that's wrong, or it's pointing in and saying like, this is how this has affected me. This is the thing that that now I have to carry because of the world being the way it is. Uh, and so I think Mr. Johnson, the, the poem to Mr. Johnson uh, does a little bit more um, pointing out than in. It's a little bit more, uh, but I think it has kind of a fun thing where it kind of plays back and forth. So I'm pointing at Mr. Johnson and I'm telling him, hey, you, um, you are... I'm exposing him via his actions, right? I'm saying, hey, I'm coloring and all of a sudden you're coming and grabbing my paper and throwing it in the trash. And look at all of the students around who you didn't terrorize, but for some reason it was me, uh, which was isn't like specifically named in the pieces. Like I'm one of the only black students in that class, right? Uh, but all the other students are, are allowed to do other things and be okay with it. That's me pointing at the world. That's me exposing what's happening. And it's through small details like um, honor roll students who are passing notes, uh, others eating sandwiches. It's this idea of going, there are tangible other things happening. And yet I'm being chosen for this. And it's kind of showing that um, hypocrisy is one of the words, but showing the flawed judgment of this teacher. And it's by exposing it through these really specific details that I'm pointing outward at. Uh, but then I, I think we we have some inward pointing when we talk through like the section where I'm talking about, um, and I don't name it as, as such, but it's in school suspension, right? I get moved out of my band classroom. I'm, you know, I'm talking about being in the jazz section, uh, playing a jazz selection because I'm in my jazz band and I get moved out of that class because this teacher doesn't like me and followed me to my other class, pulls me out to send me to in-school suspension. And as much as that's problematic in and of itself, then we have this like moment in the poem where we're talking about, I served my time in a silent room accompanied by outlaws and the company felt familiar. And that being somewhat of a, a problem, these black and brown faces forced to feel this, right? And so we turn the lens in a little bit to talk about, now I'm in this space and it feels familiar, but it's also a problem. I learn that my voice isn't my own, that I don't have this power. And I have to sit in this in-school suspension knowing uh, that I don't get to speak because someone told me that I'm in the wrong. And that's that turn in that makes the reader and the audience go, that is messed up, <laughs> right? And it's, and it's that part where change comes either from our, like, our brain, us understanding that something's wrong. And that's often what the pointing out will do. We'll show you the flaws of logic. And then the other way that we often change is in our heart. And the pointing in does that. That's the politically charged part of that is I'm going, hey, you have a heart. And you know, it's weird that all I was doing was coloring, but this teacher thinks I'm the worst kid ever and is now following me around in the day, making sure that I get in school suspension, detention, that I, that I get treated terribly. That part is is more of a heart call, right? It's more of you going, you can understand that that feels terrible. 
Um, and so I'm going to share that with you so that you see it. Have you have you caught up with Mr. Johnson in present time? I have not. What's wild about this is um, I've only performed in my in my hometown where he would be able to like see me easily um, twice. And the first time that I went to perform, it was after I had published this first book. And so I was doing a book tour and I was going all around and I was really nervous. I was like, he might show up and like, I don't know if I can share that piece because because. And I think part of the reason I named it Petty earlier is because I wrote this piece, but it's not like I sat down across from him as an adult and told him he was a bad teacher. I've now just publicly written a poem about him, uh, which seems a little petty, but also it's a little bit of my my own version of accountability. Um, but I have not. And he's actually uncomfortably moved from being a teacher to a vice principal. And that makes me really uncomfortable. And, and that says a lot, right? And I saw like an eye roll there because that is exactly, yeah, he's actually moved up a bit, which has made me more uncomfortable. But at the same time, I did perform in my hometown and there were people who then came up to me afterwards and said, yes, he terrorized me, he terrorized me, he was not a good teacher, da, 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 da. Uh, and so at least I felt, I found community in that. I at least found that like people being able to sit with that experience with me and go, I get it. Um, and so that was at least nice, but I have not sat across from him and I'm not sure if that'll ever happen. And I, I like to think that I'm grown enough now that I won't back down, but uh, we know how power dynamics work and he always had the power. And the last time I engaged with him, he still had power. So I don't know how I will interact knowing that he really doesn't have power. He can't send me to a detention and yet power dynamics are really hard for us to change once they're wired in our brain. And so I don't, I actually don't know how that will be. Uh, it's a little nerve wracking. Isn't it possible you have more power over him right now? Yes. It, it like I have more of a public platform that I could I could very publicly like shame him more, I guess, probably. But um Well, I'm not talking about shame. I'm talking about understanding, creating understanding. If he doesn't understand what he did back then and he's still in a role where he interacts with students, maybe it would be helpful for him to get what mm. impact he had. I think that's a really good point. And I think it speaks to um, what I've thought about a lot with this work, which is that I, um, because I mean, I, I've started performing. I, my career is in Iowa City, Iowa. It's it's uh, me speaking about blackness and in, in primarily white spaces. And I've thought about this a lot about what my my role is, what my um, responsibility is. And I take the approach of um, of like uh, what I think is a good educator, which is to to one meet them where they're at. Uh, and lead them to water, but only if they want to be led to water. So I've like decided it's the people who come up to me after a show or after a reading or who have just met, read my book or whatever, and they say, hey, I want to talk to you about this thing. Um, hey, I might have said something problematic. Uh, can we talk about it kind of thing? Those are the people that I'm willing to give a lot of my energy to. Uh, maybe too much. We're working on work-life balance in this way, but I want the world to change. And so... If Mr. Johnson came to me and said, hey, I would like for us to debrief this. I would like for us to talk through what happened here. Then that I then I think I would probably entertain that, like get a coffee and talk through this moment. Um, but I think the idea of seeking out someone who's not looking to 
to be a better educator. I don't have any reason to believe that he wants to be all I, all from my experiences, he was a bad one. Right. So I have, and, 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 and I would say a um, minority in, in the realm of educators and the fact that I have a hard time believing he wants to be a good teacher. Um, I think he likes a lot of power. And I think that's, what's really playing for his, why he picked the job and career that he did. Uh, but the moment that he shows me that that's not the case, then yeah, I'll entertain like, yeah, we can talk about this. Um, because I've had, I've had teachers who have read my book years later and then come up to me or messaged me, right. Haven't seen me since I was a fifth grader or something and being like, oh my gosh, I just want to tell you, like, I remember this one time I didn't say the right thing. And like, I'm thinking and growing now and like, I'm sorry. And how could I have been better? And I will spend all day talking to you about what I think we could do better and what would have helped at least in my experience and, and all of that. Um, but I'm not, I'm not in the business of forcing people to believe what I believe in or what I know to be true or the experiences that I had. Um, but if you're willing to learn with me, grow with me, then I'm, I'm so for it. You live in Iowa city, which is kind of a bubble. <laughs> you know, it, it, yeah. it, it's, it's a lovely bubble. Um, and the rest of the world outside of Iowa city, there are so many people who are feeling hopeless and helpless with the Iowa legislature banning books and all of the things that are going on. A piece of what drives me to do things like this is to, you know, we're not alone. <laughs> we, mm -hmm. we, there are other people who, who don't hate people because of the way they look or because of right. their gender, et cetera. But sometimes, sometimes it's lonely when you read the news and you see what is happening out there. How do you, how do you keep going, Caleb? Um, ooh -wee. On, on the hardest days, um, it's, it's an act of centering. It's an act of going, maybe I won't read the newspaper or the news today. And maybe just for today, I'm going to sit with the people I love that I know love me. Um, or, or if it's a particularly hard day and I travel a lot. So sometimes that's really hard for me as I'm going, Caleb, I know that I need to call someone that I love today. I know that might be my mom. That might be my best friend. And it might be that we don't talk about any of the heavy, but it's the fact that like, sometimes it can feel so isolating, um, because we are carrying everything. It feels like on our own. It's, it's, we, I have to carry the weight of legislation, not believing that I deserve the rights that I deserve or, or that they don't want to push progress forward in the way of, of other people having the rights that they should have, or the love that they should have, or the education that they should have. Um, and sometimes it feels all individualized, but the moment that I can recognize, um, and, and be intentional about connecting myself with those who are also carrying the same burden. Uh, it's like, it's like the concept of like, I think about this when it comes to uh, parents back in the day for me would go, you know, I walked to school uphill both ways, you know, or whatever. Right. And the idea is that might be true. Uh, and, and I, sometimes I would like, I'd ask like my dad to be like, well, you know, did you ever have anyone with you? And sometimes it's just the fact that you can recognize that you're walking the hardest path, but with people next to you, 
that it and they can't carry they may not be able to carry your backpack with you right they've got their own backpack to carry but it's the idea that you know you're not alone and sometimes it's the making sure that you don't just look down at the steps that you're taking in order to get uphill both ways but to look next to you and recognize and intentionally choose to recognize that there are people next to you that are doing it too um yeah I think about children today a lot and you were actually work with them. And um, I'm, I'm be fascinated to hear what your experience is in dealing with children and not only what's happening politically and um, among adults saying so, so many hateful things who are in positions of power that should know better, mm-hmm. but also COVID and, the internet and bullying. And I just can't imagine what it's like to be a kid today. You work with children. What, what are, what are they going through? Oh man. Uh, along with the like weight of uh, adolescence, right? The, like the, yeah. the range of angst that just exists that we, none of us can get out of when it comes to, you know, growing through at least your high school teenage years. Uh, along with that, they are now also feeling that weight and responsibility of the world around them. But I, and I know for them, a lot of the students that I work with, it is the idea of like, what does it mean to live in a uh, society that does not respect you or value you in so many capacities and at so many identities, at so many things that you love, uh, feeling like left and right legislation is telling you they don't re- care about you or the people in power are saying things that hurt. Uh, but what I, what I will say is I, I get really lucky that I get to work with the young people because I actually think that they just, they give me a lot of hope. They have a lot of fight They're They're not rolling over because of this. And that gives me the hope because I've been doing, you know, this work for 10 plus years. And I, there are days where I've been writing poems about race relations and then another person gets murdered. And I go, how, 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 ah, I want to pull my hair out. I want to go, nothing's changing. And, and, and I'm, lo- and I sometimes lose my, my hope uh, going, it's the same thing as was 10 years ago. Right. Uh, but the young people, part of it is that they don't have that experience. And part of it is that they just still have energy. I had to like start acknowledging that I'm personally getting older and I just have less energy than, than an angsty teenager does, right? Like I just can't bounce off the walls in the same way. So they can recognize their angst. They can recognize the outside world that's really pushing against them uh, at a level that I think we haven't seen in history before. And they still have so much fight. They still feel very capable. The young people I talk to still feel like they can change it, that they can do it. They're fed up. They're like not, but they feel like they actually have the power for accountability. And I'd argue that this day and age, thankfully, like for technology, they kind of do. They kind of really have the ability to to band together. What we know about like community organizing is you need a small percentage. I believe it's somewhere like 3.7% of a grassroots movement in order to really make the change that that grassroots movement wants to make. Um, and if you can connect a bunch of young people via TikTok to make sure that they don't, they, they sell out a show that then they don't show up at, all of a sudden that's a power, right? That's something. Uh, and they are, they're, they are creative and they are recognizing their power and they are wielding it better than we would know how to, to be honest. And so it gives me a lot of hope. It gives me a lot of hope that they're like, we're not rolling over because of this. We're not. Good. 
Well, I'm glad to hear that. I hope I hope you see that in places beyond Iowa City too. Tell me about what you're doing. Let's talk about what's Caleb, what's it like to be you these days? Yeah, pretty, pretty <laughs> wild. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm still I, I run that uh, nonprofit program, IC Speaks, where I teach high school students spoken word. And so I do that uh, pretty regularly. We meet weekly for generative workshops and we do other like open mics and all that stuff. Uh, and, and so I'm in charge of creating that programming and, and making sure we get into the schools and all of that. The other things that I'm doing, I, I uh, produce a annual poetry festival that uh, happens every fall. It's happening November, I believe it's third and fourth this year. And it's called Mike Check Poetry Fest. And so that is my like hope when I'm talking, I don't work with young people all the time. So this is my chance to reach adults and bring uh, wonderful spoken word poets into the Iowa state, <laughs> into the area so that people can um, really engage with these conversations outside of uh, institutions, to be honest. I think part of this work comes from, I I don't think I'll ever be a teacher in a normal classroom with a, with a set curriculum, because I don't believe that it'll give me the freedom I need to say to teach the things that I think the young people really need right now, and and so so part of that is like the same thing with my production of of um, Mike Check Poetry Fest is to make sure that I can reach people outside of their normal spaces so that we can really talk about the real stuff. Um, and then I am traveling the country. I I get I get booked by uh, colleges and. Uh, and, and other school districts and simply just other events across the country to, to perform and either share my work uh, and like perform for, you know, an hour or so, or, or I'll do, I'll do workshops that are both like poetry focused or DEI focused. So we can talk about that. Um, and, and I've been really, really loving that. I think just recently I was at Simpson college and I got to visit central in the last couple of months and, uh, I did something with the honor students at Des Moines area community college. Uh, yeah. So I've been, I've been bopping around Iowa a lot trying to, to share, but also across the country. I, I went out to Virginia and I spoke with the whole um, Fairfax uh, school district, which is one of the largest school districts in the, in the country uh, and got to meet with all of these DEI, like, um, administrators and these, and these teachers who are interested in DEI and getting to help them like develop their, their education and, and their approach in the classroom. So for those who don't know, describe what DEI does. All right. Uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion is this idea of, uh, and it's, it's really been growing in a lot of institutions, organizations, and, 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 uh, even businesses, right, and all those things. Uh, it is kind of the intentional choice um, to focus on um, people with varying identities and abilities um, and making sure that the company or the organization or the district or whatever is fighting for equity, which is that idea of not necessarily fairness, but the writing of, of a tilted scale. Uh, in order to make sure that uh, those who who sometimes don't feel comfortable will make it a workshop space. Sometimes in a workshop, if you're the only black person in a workshop, you might feel a little uncomfortable uh, to share your experience. So some of the DEI work is having the people who run the space, the people who are in power, being intentional about how can I make those who don't historically have power in these spaces feel comfortable. 
um, or feel heard and valued, or even to make sure that they come, right? I think about a lot when we talk about education, when I was in high school, I didn't join the poetry club, which is now my profession. I did not join the poetry club because it was a couple of white kids and a white teacher that didn't make me feel like I should be there or that even the poetry I liked was, was a value, right? And so DEI work would be uh, someone in maybe the district talking to this teacher and being like, hey, so what are some ways that we can make sure black students wanna come or queer students or so on and so forth. It's this focus on uh, making sure that that other people um, who historically haven't had a chance or haven't felt valued or comfortable have that space. Um, that would also be like first generation people who are their first time, they're the first person in their family to go to college, right? A lot of colleges will include that in their DEI work. Because the first time you go to college and if you're none of your, no one in your family has been to college and all of a sudden that's a really big um, difference between those who grew up in a family that's been to college. They know maybe a little bit more about university and institutions than you do, where you're lucky that you got through the FAFSA or whatever. <laughs> um, so that's kind of what DEI is. How old were you when you first realized that you had this gift or that you wanted to pursue it? Hmm. That's so interesting because you name it as a gift. And I was thinking about uh, with that, with that word choice. The first time I realized that I wanted to do what I was, what I'm doing was when I was 16. And that's because I took the stage for the first time. Um, and I, I went to a white high school, right. And I had teachers like Mr. Johnson and, but I, I took the stage to impress a girl. And when I did, uh, I felt listened to, I felt heard uh, in, a, in, a, in a world and at a time where I didn't feel really heard. And so from then on, I decided I wanted to keep doing it. But that was for me. So I, but then you named this gift and I was like, when did I start deciding I was going to give it to other people? Like when it also was a part of serving other people. And I would say that happened probably closer to like 2016, 2017. Uh, when I started really deciding that I was going, that this work was not only for me to share my experiences, but to actively help educate and teach and move us forward uh, and to give that gift, I guess. Um, and that that happened more around there. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I'm going to open it up for uh, comments and questions from the group here. But uh, before we get to those, and by the way, if you do have a, something you'd like to ask, Caleb, just raise your hand. Um, when we talk about poetry, so many people I know, and I'm sure you know, are uncomfortable with the idea. You know, they, oh, I'm, I'm not a poet. Da, 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 da. What do you say to them to um, encourage their experience of tapping into something that they've never tried before? The, the two things that I always do is I, I decide that part of the reason that they have that fear is because of what they think poetry is. So my job is then to give them so many examples of what poetry can be so that I can kind of internally like break that mold that they've set up, that that restriction. And then the other part is that I, I um, kind of really emphasize this idea of poetry is a place for play. And so I, I, the first time that you're writing a poem, 
allow yourself to just be playing around. And maybe sometimes we need to tell ourselves no one else is going to read this. I'm yeah. just doing this. And then all of a sudden we feel free. Then all of a sudden, it's like dancing in your room when no one's watching, right? All of a sudden you've got the best moves in the world and you're really getting it. But that's because you allowed yourself to, and you said no one's looking, right? And no one will ever see this. And so sometimes it's like helping people realize you can do that. You can write a poem that doesn't have to be for, for consumption, for publication, for anything. Play for, for a little bit. And then maybe you'll find a poem that you want to, to share with the world. Maybe you'll find that dance move that you're going, well, now I got to show it. Now I got to show it off. But first, allow yourself the, the place to play. Makes a lot of sense. So Nikki Schissel has her hand raised. And Nikki, you you are still muted. Nikki was at the Okaboji Writers Retreat last fall, coming again this fall, I believe. And Ooh, she, yes, yeah. absolutely. And uh, I certainly enjoyed uh, Caleb when he was at the Writers Workshop. I'm sort of interested in uh, how you work. Unfortunately, John and I are in the same room. John, <laughs> can you hear me? I can I hear you. There's a little bit of echo, but I've got John muted, so I'm not sure why. But anyway, okay, go ahead. I think I'm still out. He comes into his computer. Anyway, um, I'm interested in how you work. Do you get uh, something that you want to speak first, or do you write something down on paper first? Um how does that work? And do you work in a regular schedule where you say, I'm going to do this much this week? How, how do you, how do you work? Yes, that's a great question. Uh, and, and two, two pronged there. So one, uh, the way that, the way that I like write regularly, um, is, uh, I'm lucky that I, whenever I teach students, I never ask students to do something I won't do myself. So anytime that I ask them to write to a prompt, I also write, which does help me write pretty regularly because I'm working with them pretty regularly. Um, uh, and then outside of that, I, uh, actually don't have like a, I, you know, write an hour every day situation. I don't, I don't have that rigidity in my life, partially because I travel a lot and my life is a little chaotic, but, um, also because it allows me to, to really write when I'm inspired. And so what it requires me to do is to be a little bit more, um, self-aware and, um, I was talking, uh, someone asked me somewhat of like what inspires a poem for me and, and, uh, for me, I notice a lot of it comes from, from experience and internally listening to my breath. When my breath changes is our moments that I go, something's happening that had, that holds weight for me. And so then I try to kind of catalog that and I might write that down and write then what thoughts am I having right now? And then later I can come back to them and write a poem if I don't have the time at that moment. But that meant that, um, that something happened. So I have a poem that even names that, that says, you know, um, someone said something messed up to me and I feel my breath catch. I think I feel my fingers curl into a fist and my body is begging to answer with might. Right. And so all of a sudden it's because I'm having this conversation with someone, something happens and I, I feel it. Uh, Matt Mason, who is the Nebraska state poet laureate. I was just like on a panel with him and he named it as like anything that makes his body move. He's like, so if I'm driving and I find myself turning my head to look out the window, I'm going to write a poem about that. I'm going to write a poem about whatever made me, made me look because that means something was activating me. Uh, and so that's kind of how I write when it comes to figuring out what poem I'm going to write and, and what happens. A lot of mine come from conversations, which hence is the breath as I feel myself feeling differently as I'm having conversations with people. The poem I just referenced, Mike, an old white man looks me in my eyes and says, 
why do black men not want to be good dads? Right. Uh, and then, and I feel, and I feel something, right. And I feel it happened in my body. And I said, I'm going to have to write about this. Uh, and that's going to be a poem. So a lot of my poems start with a conversation I've had a lot of things like that. So that's kind of how I write when it comes to writing wise. And then, um, I think what was the other question is, oh, how, like, how does it like actually come, come onto the page or onto the stage? So I never write something that hasn't come out of my mouth first. Uh, that doesn't mean that I perform it, but I have to feel what the, what the sounds are like in my mouth. And so I'm one of those writers who makes sure the line is perfect in my head before it ever meets the page. And then before it ever meets the stage, because uh, I do write all of my poems on the page before they make it to the stage, but they come out of my mouth first, right? So it's like this practice and the cyclical nature of, of making sure that I know how it sounds, how it feels, that it's actually catching my voice and where I'm driven to, where my breath is going. Then I, then I feel it. The sounds are fun. Write that down and then memorize it, practice it and share it to the stage. Nikki, do you have one of your poems handy? Is Do you have something accessible that you could read to Caleb? Um. I can look. I don't have. Uh, we're we're at Okaboji. <laughs> oh, good. And uh, so I um I just recently printed out all of my poems and put them in a notebook, but I don't have it with me. So um, uh, okay, I, I do write and I I write I write about events sometimes, but mostly it's an emotion uh, of something that I've felt, whether it's personal or something that I've seen others. Um, you know, experience. Um, and then I write a lot about family. <laughs> I mm. just had a grandson who turned 21. So uh, 21 gets a poem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and a daughter who turned 50. So she got a poem. <laughs> Dang, those are big numbers. All right. Yeah, huge. <laughs> I've had the opportunity to read some of Peggy's, or Peggy, sorry, Nikki's uh, right. poems. And they're just they're just so delightful. And I I uh, am so impressed that she's doing this and has for years and kind of has this sort of family lore about, you know, Nikki's Nikki's family poems. I'm so looking forward to having you. I'm glad to hear that you put them in notebook form and good for you. I'll, I'll bring some to the writer's retreat. OK, good. <laughs> Hey, speaking of that, do you have, um, do you want people to bring work that they've already produced or written, or do you start from scratch? You're talking to me about my work. Mm -hmm. We start from scratch. Um, if I, I do, I have done and will do workshops where you can bring work and then we, we talk through it. Um, often uh, I'm not, um, I don't have the opportunity to do that because so many people will say, well, my poem's not meant to be read out loud or something like that. Right. And so then they, they'll be like, well, I'd rather just write something new with whatever you're going to teach me and, and then play with it, which is fine. And I understand. Um, I do think uh, most poems can be, can be read and still felt by, by performance, by, by being shared on a stage. Uh, but I do also understand that there are some poems that are purely meant for the page and you don't want to bring them to a spoken word poet. Like you don't want to share them with the, with the people and that's okay. Um, but yes, I have done workshops where we like see what we've got and we either practice performing them or we practice just like editing and revising them um, using some insight that we have. Early on, you branded yourself as the Negro poet or the Negro artist. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Tell us about that and where where that has taken you as a result. 
Uh, so, so the Negro artist comes from, uh, around, around seventh grade, I was, uh, reckoning with two things, which is that I knew I wanted to be a writer. I didn't think I'd be a poet to be honest, but I knew I wanted to be a writer. And I also was reckoning with the, you know, being 12 or 13 around my peers and reckoning with the fact that I was black around a lot of white people. Right. And figuring out how to, how to be that. And, and, uh, a teacher of mine actually lovely gave me, um, lovingly gave me an essay by Langston Hughes, which is titled The Negro Artist in the Racial Mountain. And it's all about, you know, um, a black artist coming up to Langston Hughes and being and saying, I don't want to be a black artist. I just want to be an artist. And Langston Hughes telling him like, oh, buddy, <laughs> you're always going to be a black artist. But that's beautiful. Right. Like because you're a black artist and you're also so many things. And this idea of um, great artists start understanding who they are and use that to their ability as a writer. And so you should celebrate that you have stories to tell that other people can't tell, that you have experiences and an outlook that is unique to you instead of trying to hide it, trying to bury it behind just the word artist and hoping the word artist is big enough you can be a black artist and be proud of both and be proud of the fact that even when you're writing about something uh, that doesn't mention race, it, if you're black, it is still, it is still drenched in blackness. It is still part of who you are because all of you is in whatever you create artistically. Um, and so it's like this, uh, this argument to be proud. And so when I started around 2016, 2017, started taking way more stages and a lot of them being in Iowa, a lot of them being in white audiences, um, I kind of took on the name, the Negro artist as a recognition for myself so that when I walk into a space and my, and you, and you have to recognize that my name is Caleb, the Negro artist, Rainey, uh, you have to recognize that I'm black. I know that I'm black. You know that I'm black. You know that I know that I'm black <laughs> like, and that there's no shame there and that I love who I am and that that's okay. And um, I'm not trying to start a fight. Just the fact is that I want you to know that like, I'm not going to try to hide that part of me and I want you all to recognize it. And then I want us to be able to live with that. And, and that was also around a time where a conversation about colorblindness had come up a lot. And so that was part of it too, is like, I don't want you all to be colorblind. I want you to see that I'm black and I'm happy to be that. Um, and so that was kind of that was kind of uh, how I got to the Negro artist that way. And now it's taken me to a lot of places because um, there are a lot of people who can then recognize that I'm willing to have that conversation. And that's kind of what it, how it serves me the most now is that there are people who can go, let's talk about this. Or an MC who goes, can I can I say this? Like, am I allowed to announce this name? Right. Those kinds of things where I get to go. Yes. We can talk about language, we can talk about race, and we can talk about how that works in this world with a kind of um, easier bite, not biting off too much in that conversation too soon. We can talk about race and language with a quick bite of, can I say your name? Why do you have that name? This is weird. That's old, right? Like <laughs> being able to have those combos and being like, yes, yes, but we're going we're gonna to talk about it. And then from there, we can talk about any and all of the other ideals connected to that. Have you had an experience of schools finding you controversial in advance of your appearance? I mean, I yeah, I can't imagine going to Florida, for example, these days. I mean, wait, they're, yeah. they're banning what? I mean, I, I can't believe what they're banning. 
Well, I'll even say even just in Iowa, but the answer is is yes. Even just in Iowa, where uh, you're not allowed to teach critical race theory, um, it gets tricky when you bring me in and I'm going to talk about race, right? And I have had schools who had to talk um, and we had to have a discussion prior to of like, what what am I allowed to say? You you are you're hiring me, but do you know what I do, right? And 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 them going yes, but there are some things we would love for you like not to say and for me to be able to and I and I've had to challenge back and say like I uh, may not say it in between poems, but what my poems say are what my poems say, and I and I'm, I won't be changing that. Maybe I won't talk so much in between and and hopefully not put my foot in my mouth too much when it comes to saying things that might be a little too um, like radical, but. If you're if you're hiring me to bring my poems, I've I've always stood firm in that, and I've had to say that of like if you're hiring me to share my poems, oftentimes you don't get to pick what poem I'm going to perform. And my poems are my truth. You're not going to ask me to lie in front of a bunch. Of, you can't pay me to lie to people. I'm not going to do that. Um, and so, so we've had that that conversation, and I've never had anyone back completely out. Um, and so that's been nice. I've had places that have maybe like gone, okay, well this is our theme. If you can help, you know, focus on that theme. Right. And hoping that I don't bring up some stuff or, um, maybe ask for a, a lesser or limited time, but no one that's ever been like, all right, then we can't do this. And so that's nice. Do you get a sense that maybe the phone isn't ringing as much as it might've before this mm. in states like Iowa? I actually think, I think actually the opposite. I think um, one of people see me as what I've, I think I've really wanted to do, which is a way to operate without outside of the system. Because sometimes in certain policies and stuff, you can hire me to come in and say things that you're not allowed to say. Right. And, and so that's actually been some somewhat helpful. I've had a teacher reach out to me before and be like, I, I so like technically I had to change my curriculum and like, I can't say the things I wanted to say, but I can have you come. And I would love for you to just do what you do, right? And like, they don't, and then and I'm like on the opposite end, they get really hands off in hopes that I go where they want me to go. You know, like we're in hopes that, that I say some things that they aren't allowed to say. And so I, I think it's actually been the opposite of like, it's really hard to change the system with, while you're within it. So people see me, a person who's operating outside of the system as a way to shake things up. And so people are going, please, please come do what I can't do right now. Or I can't risk my job, right? But I can get you here and you'll get paid even by the institution that might not be happy with what you say or whatever. And so um, I actually think it's been more of a positive. Good, good. Two things were coming up uh, on the hour, but I'd love to have you do another poem. Oh, sure, and, and I'd also love it before we get to that, because we'll close with you reading an, another poem. But tell us about a prompt. If you could give an assignment to this group, what would that be? Can you think of anything off the top of your head? Ooh, um, mm, mm, mm. Oh, that's really interesting. Okay. And what I, was, I was just going to say, while you're thinking of one, I would love to invite the people who are on this call to actually do the prompt and send it to you. Yes. Wouldn't that be cool? So the prompt I would love uh, is a little, oh my gosh, um, closer to like um, what the, uh, which also wonderful idea, Julie. Um, 
is the idea of doing the work of identifying what you think your primary identity is. So for me, I my primary identity is being Black. So most of the way that I operate life, I see through the lens of Blackness first. Then I might think about how I'm a man or I'm young or I'm this or I'm that. Uh, another example of primary identity is like my mom and I have been talking about this a lot now that she's an empty nester uh, for a few years is that her primary identity for most of her life was mom. She was, I was a mom. Every, every information you told me, I thought through mom lens first and then uh, the rest of the rest of her identities. And so if you think about what your primary identity is, what you see the world through most often, is it, is it being a grandparent? Is it being um, a, a woman? Is it being a man? Is it being um, a political standing? Is it, is it a religion, right? Figuring out what your primary identity is and then writing the origin story of that. Right, the origin story of your primary identity. Were you were you given that? Was someone did someone tell you that was your primary identity, or did you pick it? Um, is the world happy that that's your primary identity? These are those kind of questions to write about and kind of come up with that origin story of how you became this primary identity. Um, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Wow, that's cool. Have you given that prompt to others? Yes, it's it's a that's like a truncated and like smaller version of uh, one that I do in my DEI workshop. I bring I bring a lot of different prompts to help spark thoughts and, and conversation. But that's kind of one of them. Yeah. When you've done that, what what answers have surprised you the most? Mm. Um, I think one that was that's been really interesting is is um, motherhood with from a mother who felt like they didn't have a choice like all their life they were told that they were gonna have to be a mother and so like they were a woman and they're like i'm gonna have to be a mom and so this idea of like having motherhood and she wrote about not loving it the way that she thought she was supposed to and that feeling really complicated because that was still her primary identity the world had told her she was to grow up and be a mom and then and then she was but it was it was harder than she thought and it was more complicated and with a partnership that she didn't love which made that harder right and so that was one that like really struck me um because i i i've been lucky enough to be surrounded by very many women who love being moms and so like when i heard that i was like oh i sometimes your primary identity is really kind of forced upon you uh and and hard to deal with if even if if you have somebody in a workshop whose primary identity is from a victim experience, do you try and reimagine or reframe that experience or do you have them embrace it? Mm. I also, I often have them embrace it, but with, with identities like that, which can be like really drenched in like some trauma and some, and some hard times. Um, I try to, I try to guide that towards, um, towards how has that primary identity, though it is uh, stemming from or rooted from a trauma or, or a negative, how has it informed your hope? is like often the way that I, I kind of guide that. So we don't have to stay in the deep and the dark if that's too heavy and too hard. So how can we talk about, the fact is, is that the world has been madly racist to me, <laughs> um, but I actually use that energy to find a lot of hope 
when I meet someone who's very lovely and is trying to fight with me, right? That then I go, oh yes. And so I use that to to strengthen my empathy and my compassion. Um, and to fight for other fights that aren't my own because I know what it's like and that kind of stuff. And so um, I often guide people if they have an identity kind of drenched in the hard stuff to, to go, how does that still that lens guide you towards hope? I love it. Okay, well, we're not going to have time to do breakout sessions at the close of this. I apologize for that. But if you could take us home with one of your favorite poems, Caleb, but first let me thank you so much for being with us today, but also for everything that you do. Thank you. Uh, and thank you all for, for being here and being in this space with me. Uh, I think I'll share, I think I'll share Bad Dad just because I started that poem and I told you all a little bit about it already. So I figured I might as well finish that one for you. Um, yeah. Mike, an old white man, looks me in my eyes and asks me why Black men don't want to be good dads. I feel my breath catch. My fingers curl into a fist, every muscle in my body begging to answer with might, with fight. See, there's this home video where my dad is lying on the couch, six month old me on his chest. And I start to cry. He picks me up, gives me a gentle kiss on the cheek and holds me upright with a shh. With my feet planted on his chest and his hands holding me upright, he is doing everything he can to keep me calm, to keep the hunger at bay. Now, I watch home videos and wonder what little black boys are supposed to do when there's no one there to hold them up when the hunger gets to be too much. See, I've never met a black man who wanted to be a bad dad but plenty that didn't know how to be anything else. Either absent or abusive, they fall short of fatherhood into teachers of trauma. See, my dad's dad worked hard, but sometimes hit hard too. He was a Southern man, better understood by his hands, and he raised five kids this way. On the day that he raises his fist to his wife, my dad jumps on his dad's back, all lightweight and lanky, pounding fist against father because my dad knows what's worth fighting for. See, my dad taught me what's worth fighting for. So on my 16th birthday, when I'm, when I'm crying in bed because my girlfriend is carrying our baby inside of her like an unexpected gift, I find the strength to tear up the receipt. No returning to cinder. I will fight for this fatherhood. And even though even though God's postal service permanently delayed that delivery, I can tell you with complete certainty that I would have died fighting for the title, Good Dad. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, love the snaps, love the love. Thank you. Thank you, Caleb, very much. I'm great. Yeah, see you in September, okay? Yes.
Here Thank we go. you, Paul.